Welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis, and we have a fantastic interview for you this month on tap. I'm really excited about today. We have two of the finest brass players of any generation. They have to be, happen to be very young guys, but they are simply some of the best brass players of all time. They are world-class jazz artists. We have the incredible Mr. Michael Deese and the great Mike Rodriguez with us today. Michael Deese uh, grew up in Augusta, Georgia. He got his bachelor's and master's degree from the Juilliard School. Uh, Mike Rodriguez was born in New York City in Queens and spent his early years there and then moved down to Miami, spent some time at the University of Miami and then finished up his schooling at the New School here in New York City. Uh, both vaulted immediately to the apex of the international jazz scene as featured sidemen, solo artists, uh, composers, and as educators. Uh, Michael Deese's impressive credentials include work with Christian McBride, Roy Hargrove, Nicholas Payton, the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, Alicia Keys, Paul Simon, Fred Wesley, Maceo Parker, that's just to name a few. Uh, Mike Rodriguez's myriad touring and recording credits include work with Clark Terry, Bobby Watson, Quincy Jones, Joe Lovano, also the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, uh, a great association with the late Charlie Hayden, uh, Bob Minster, Eddie Palmieri, both are prolific solo artists. Uh, Mike Deese is getting ready to release his seventh critically acclaimed CD as a solo artist. And Mike Rodriguez has four CDs out with his brother Robert and also one as a solo artist. Uh, Mike Deese is on the faculty at the uh, excellent Michigan State University jazz program. And Mike Rodriguez spends his time as an educator here in New York at NYU and also SUNY Purchase. So without further ado, uh, Mike Rodriguez and Mike Deese, thank you so much for taking time out of your guys' busy schedules to be with us today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great to have you. And I want to give a special thanks to Mike Deese. He just flew in from Detroit uh, and I picked him up at the airport. He was just down in Argentina. So extra special thanks for all that, Mike. Well, let's jump into your guys' early formative years. You guys uh, obviously both have a, a very natural, incredible gift in, uh, in, as musicians. Uh, Mike, why don't we start with you growing up in Augusta, and what's phenomenal about you, you're one of the, I mean, there's no trombone player who has more technique. There may be a couple who have on the same level as you, but none more. You started trombone in college, but before that, you played saxophone and trumpet. So maybe you could just talk about, you know, that whole time and then how that you kind of gravitated to the trombone. Sure. Um, well, I'll try to give you the short version here. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I remember like the first portable CD player, you know. Um, gosh, I'm only 32. Do I, is, do I still start telling like old people stories now? You know, like <laughs> I remember the first CD player, but it, this guy, this thing was huge. It was like the world's biggest sandwich. And my, and my dad is uh, is from the country. He doesn't know how to work electronics and things. Um, but I, I knew how. So he had a CD called Heart and Soul 50s, and it had tunes like Corina Corina. Um, Big Joe Turner and the tequila, and they all had sax solos. So I was like in love with the saxophone from doo-wop mm -hmm. tracks back in the day. Mm. And so when we had to test all the instruments in school, you know, I had played recorder, and then I pointed at the saxophone. It was shiny and expensive, and it was that thing I heard on the record, so I wanted to play it. So um, I did that in, from age 11 on, and my mother uh, got me a CD. Uh, 
uh, Verve Jazz Masters, Charlie Parker. Mm. And she's, my mother's from New, New, uh, New York, Brooklyn, New York, actually. And, uh, and her father was a sort of an amateur jazz pianist. Um, he worked for the post office, but he taught himself how to, how to play. And, and my mom was so hip, she said, uh, you know, if you're going to play saxophone, you, you have to know about Bird. Mm. And, wow. and I was like, whoa, okay, this, this, this is getting interesting, you know. And Charlie Parker blew me away. So at, at like 15, I got into the Omni book and listening to as many like CDs and, and jazz radio, which there wasn't much of back home. But uh, I, at that time, I you know, started listening and hanging around town, learning how to play and, and use my ear to play along with bands, playing in nightclubs, mostly like top 40 music. Mm-hmm. And I picked up a trumpet at a flea market and messed around a little bit on that, taught myself how to play it. And the trombone happened for me when a friend of mine played me Blue Train, John Coltrane's like, you know, amazing groundbreaking record. And when I heard the trombone solo, I was just like, no way, it's not possible. I, trombones can't play like that. <laughs> and when I found out it was Curtis Fuller, I just, it blew me away. I put down saxophone and became a trombonist. And, and I had to actually um, talk one of my friends into giving me his old trombone so I could learn how to play it. My band director wouldn't let me borrow a trombone from the school. Um, no more about that. <laughs> but yeah, so short story is my mom was really, really there for me and nurtured me and, and believed in me and, and gave me like the sort of the support and the assurance to, to, to really make a go of it as, a, as an artist. Ah, cool stuff. Yeah. Mike, how about yourself growing up? Uh, growing up, um, <clears throat> my father's a drummer, so he always had a, a drum set set up in the living room, which my, I'm sure my mom would appreciate that. <laughs> but, uh, he always had a, a miscellaneous instruments around as well, like a guitar, and he brought in a, an alto sax once. He picked up some, some dude in the street was selling it, so he's like, all right, I get, you know, Bundy sax. <laughs> so actually, uh, we always had instruments around the house and I remember as kids my brother and I uh, Robert would always you know pick them up and play with them and whatnot and, and my brother actually started on the alto sax that was his first instrument actually no piano was his first instrument at five but then he, he started fooling around with the sax once he got to middle school mm. when we moved to Florida but um uh yeah I didn't I mean I was I was a kid you know I, I didn't really get serious about any any, any instrument until I was about uh, nine years old or my, they put me in a classical guitar. Actually, mm-hmm. I was a classical guitarist. Oh, cool. Mm. And then when I got to middle school, my brother was already playing saxophone in the symphonic band. Win, yeah, the symphonic ensemble. And so I wanted to play saxophone as well. But my brother, uh, he's like, man, well, I'm already covering that. You should play something <laughs> else, you know? <laughs> I said, okay, but they don't really have guitar in the program, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pick something. And then I remember watching a, uh, a video Oh, I think it was a Channel 13 with my father. We were watching uh, like P- the PBS channel down in Florida. And it was a concert with Dizzy playing. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, I think I'll, I'll try that. You know? So the next week, I started summer school, uh, sixth grade, middle school. And I, and I picked up the trumpet and then kind of went from there. And for a whole year, just kind of learned from my band director. And then, uh, like Mike, you know, he had supporting uh, Parents, my, my parents were very supportive as well. My mother really, 
even though she wasn't a musician, she she always pushed us to keep practicing. And, mm. and she, she, you know, once uh, uh, the great Arturo Sandoval came into the States, it was around 92 or 93 or something like this, uh, he started teaching at FIU, Florida International University. So my mom was calling and calling, and finally she, she hooked up a lesson for mm. me with, our, with Arturo when I was 12 years old. So he was, he was my first trumpet teacher. Oh, wow. And uh, till this day, you know, I, I'm still very grateful to that for him and his what he taught me. He changed my armature. I, you know, I was a kid. I only had a year uh, of playing the trumpet. So, you know, he, he looked at my armature and he said, let me see your teeth. And, you know, my teeth were pre pretty decent, you know, pretty mm -hmm. straight. And he said, all right, we'll move the mouthpiece over here, put it in this. It kind of set me for till now. You know? Wow. That's so, awesome. So, yeah, I'm, you know, so my, I'm grateful for my parents and, and their support and whatnot. That's kind of been that's cool. the route. Yeah. As a brass player, I'm grateful to your brother for keeping you <laughs> off the saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> giving you to the brass world. Thank you. Probably all the awesome. saxophone players are pretty happy <laughs> about that, too. So. And, and I'm sure Arturo is uh, as proud of you as uh, he is, or you are, about having him as a teacher, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Least, I, I, well, you know, it, it was that one lesson. Of course, he was, he was so busy. So uh, I started studying with one of his uh, disciples and, and, and very good trumpet player from Cuba as well. His name is Alfredo Perez. Mm. And I've studied with him for about four or five years. Mm. So uh, I really got a lot, a lot of information from him mm -hmm. as, you know, in my early teen years as a brass player. So. Well, let's jump ahead to, uh, to your guys' college's experience, uh, college experiences. And uh, Mike, why don't we start with you on this sure. one? So you stayed down in Miami and went to yeah. spend some time at the University of Miami. Maybe you could talk about that a little sure. bit. Sure. Uh, I, so right after high school, I, I got into uh, the University of Miami, and I studied with uh, Al Hood, mm. who uh, is now the, he runs the, I believe, at, at D Denver University, mm -hmm. correct? He runs the program there, but mm. at the time he was uh, doing his doctorate, I believe, down at University of Miami. So I, I got to study with him for my two years down there, and you know, I, I thought the school was fantastic back then. I mean, this is 97 to 99. I mean, I think, uh, well, no, it's, it's, now the school is completely, you know, they have a new building there, a new music mm -hmm. building, and I hear it's, it's beautiful, and so, mm -hmm. you know. But when I was there, I, I thought the school was, was well-structured, you know, Witt Seidner was running the program, right. and it was like, man, it was, it was a hip, hip yeah. thing to be down there. And, mm -hmm. and for me, I, I, wasn't, I was still not ready to leave home. You know, I was 17, 18 years old, and I was trying to save up some money so I can come up to New York. You know, my goal was to come up to New York. But um, those first two years at University of Miami really, really propelled me into, you know, into some serious butt whipping. You know, mm -hmm. when I got there, I was like, "Wow, this is this is heavy." Yeah. You know? And then uh, after two years, I decided that I, I thought it was time for me to, to make the move and and uh, you know use school as as a platform to be up here and, uh, and transferred over to the new school, which I thought was great. There was a you know great players there at the time: Robert Glasper, the Strickland brothers. Uh, Mike Moreno, uh, Dion Tucker. I mean, a handful, a bunch of guys actually that were that were fantastic there. Mm -hmm. And so I, we all would learn from each other. And Keon Harrell was there, you know, mm -hmm. great trumpet player. Uh, so it was a good environment to be, you know, especially you know coming back to New York. You know, it was like oh, it felt like home coming back to home, even though I, I was gone for like 12 years in my childhood. But coming back to it was great, and you know, being at new school, you're down in the village. You know, you right. have access to to go see all this music down there. Great clubs, you know. It's so a pretty hip pretty, campus. Pretty lucky, yeah. yeah. Greenwich Village it's is pretty, your pretty campus hip. grounds. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. <laughs> That's cool. And Mike, 
you know, we talked a little bit coming up uh, from the airport that I always associate you in terms of your education being a lot at Juilliard, but I understand you started uh, down in Florida as well. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you can talk about that and then your transition to, to being at Juilliard. Sure, sure. Um, that's, uh, man, you got me reminiscing about, because I was in, I, I moved to New York right when you, uh, when, I think you were just finishing up at New School. Okay. So I remember, like, all the, all the cats that you just named, like, like being in school around that time. Mm. Um, I, think I, I think I caught... New York around the tail end of that. That's, that's cool. Memory lane. Um, <laughs> but but um, uh, yeah, so it was interesting for me because uh, I was sort of torn between, actually wasn't torn at all, but I, I had pretty much devoted myself to the trombone as soon as I heard that Curtis Fuller solo. Uh, but I had all this work that I had done as a saxophonist, uh, you know, connections I had made uh, I knew all the professors in, in like my state, my surrounding states, and, and a lot of people had, you know, been pushing me in a, in a very nice way, like you know, this is this is a good path for you, and and I felt a little bit of that too, you know, long hours of practice <laughs> make mm. you make you want to do that, but my heart was really with the trombone, which was like a brand new instrument, so I I was sort of like lost when it came time to. To figure out what I was, where I was going to go, um, I knew uh, I knew that I, I wasn't quite sure uh, where I was heading. So, so I looked around close by to see if there was a place that that might have a few different things that I would be interested in trying. So, so I chose Florida State to go to, and I stayed there for a year and a half. I think it was a year and a half, um, and there I met one of my mentors who's a classical trombone professor named John Drew. Mm -hmm. And I studied with the grad assistant the first year. They didn't have a jazz trombone professor there at the time, which, which I didn't realize would be very important for me to, to study with someone, especially I had, when I went to college, I'd only been playing trombone for six months. So, wow. so I, was, I was really interested in working directly with someone that, that did what I wanted to do. So, but I, I bugged Dr. Drew. Uh, and I got into his studio, and he was he was so supportive. Um, uh, he encouraged me to to really go after what I wanted, and gave me some great lessons. I wasn't really ready to hear it because um, I was young, as as that usually goes. But uh, Dr. Drew was great, and I remember I called Wycliffe Gordon, who, if you know anything about Augusta, Georgia, then you know there's James Brown, there's the Masters. And there's Wycliffe Gordon, <laughs> and, and so uh, pre preeminent trombonist of his, of his generation of <laughs> all generations probably, and and I called him. He he's been sort of like a big brother figure to me from back when I played saxophone, and and he invited me to an audition uh, at the Juilliard School. Uh, it was during it was in the middle of the first year of the jazz studies program to fill a slot that somebody had left, and it worked out. And I ended up staying at Juilliard uh, three and a half more years to finish my bachelor's than I stayed for my master's, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is awesome. Mm. And it, you drive me insane knowing how, what, how well you play the trombone in that amount of time. It's like it's an amazing thing. Pretty, it's just, pretty uh, sad. It's uh, it, beyond impressive, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's great to hear that uh, Wycliffe had such a strong impact for you, and, and I'm sure he has that on all of his students, so that's a mm -hmm. cool story. Let's talk about you guys starting out uh, as young professionals in New York, and I think for all of us, uh, 
whether you're uh, focusing on jazz or studio musician or whatever classical musicians. I've, New York's certainly a center. I mean, Los Angeles and New York seem probably like they come down to the two places in the United States. But it seems like we all come to that decision that we were going to come to New York and, and see what happens. And uh, maybe you guys could talk about your... Uh, it's kind of interesting that you both came, were coming out of school, so you probably already had some groundwork laid. Um, but what that was like, maybe some, as some of the memories that you have of those early uh, opportunities and early experiences, maybe we'll keep going with you, Mike. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, New York is, is really, I feel like everybody's got like a different, a, a sort of a little different path to, to finding out how their career works out. And I think that's important to know like going into it, because a lot of times we can, I think, compare each other to ourselves so much that if it doesn't work out exactly like Mike Rodriguez or Mike Davis or, or whomever else, like then, then you can almost put a value on whether you're successful or not. And, and that's unfortunate because just being in New York and playing music is successful. Mm. You know, I think we would all agree with that. Well said, yeah, but, indeed. But, but um, I know, I remember early on that that it's important for people to hear you, um, and I, I would go to all the music stores and and try out horns, you know, probably annoyingly so. Uh, <laughs> I was also looking for a horn at the time, you know. <laughs> Thankfully, I found my Michael Rath trouble, but but that's um. <laughs> Mike, you're gonna punch me about that later. <laughs> but but um, but it's uh, I remember the first gig I got in New York was actually at uh, Roberto's trying out trombones, trying to find a new horn. And, um, and James Burton was working there at the time uh, behind the counter. And he, I think he, something happened with him. He couldn't make a rehearsal that night. And, or, or maybe somebody else couldn't make the rehearsal. But he ended up asking me if I could come out to Queens to sub a big band rehearsal. And I was like, yeah, I would love to do that. That's what I came to New York for, you know? And, and so I get there, and it turns out to be none other than Illinois Jaquette's house uh, in his big band, which oh, at the nice. time had, I think Sean Jones was in there, Freddie Hendricks was, was playing in the band. Um, it was fantastic. And, uh, and I ended up playing in, in that band until the end of Illinois' life. Uh, which, which was, I think, in 2005. Mm. But, but I remember, I, I always tell my students, like, people got to hear you, um, like, like, first and foremost, you know, there's so many musicians in the, the tri-state area, in the metro area, that, that people have to, you know, basically know what you're capable of, you know, as a, as a musician. Uh, you know, first and foremost, so hanging out, you know, going to clubs, um, you know, the, the clubs are like our offices, you know, that's where all the people gather together mm. to work mm -hmm. and to socialize and to, and to talk business and to jam session, hang, and, and, and I know a big break came for me when I, uh, I uh, played in a big band with uh, the Dizzy Gillespie uh, Alumni All-Star Band, and, and that was where I, I got to meet a lot of people, and that that one gig ended up leading to associations with Charles Tolliver and, and Roy Hargrove, and ended up joining Claudio Roditi's band for three years. All guys that happened to be in that band, mm -hmm. and and I, I remember getting in that association by 
making a trek out to meet Slide Hampton one time. That was, uh, and, and that's all sort of like, nobody does that for you. Mm -hmm. You have to, you know, show the initiative and ask the right questions and, and you know, really try to open those doors, even find out where those doors are located yourself. And it's, it's slowly becoming a lost art. Mm. I think it was being lost when I moved here. And you, you got you to gotta sort of dig for it. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, a lot of those opportunities with, those, with the elders uh, are, are slowly uh, waning you know, mm -hmm. because of, well, a lot of them are, are unfortunately passing away and whatnot. So I think that uh, a lot of the students have to kind of find their own way now. Like, I know a lot, of, a lot of guys coming out of college and right away they do a record and, you know, they're trying to do their thing rather than, you know, going through the, the process, I guess. I don't mm -hmm. know. I guess it's changing now. It's different, obviously, than when we were in school. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what are some of your memories that you have? Uh, like some of those first uh, opportunities that come to mind when you look back. Sure. Um, well, being I think that being in school helped with the network process of that mm -hmm. uh, studying. I when I got to the new school, I you're able to study with whoever you want. That's one of the great things about the school. And I studied with Laurie Frank. For two years, and uh, I, I, I was able to break up my lessons, so I, I can do nine lessons in total. So I would do six with her and three with, uh, you know, like a, a jazz player or whatever. You know. So I, I studied with Mac Joe Magnarelli for for two semesters, mm -hmm. and and Joe was great. Uh, I mean, I learned a ton from from Laurie. She was like, you know, the guru, the chops, and all this, and yes, right. and and Joe with the, you know, just the life that comes out of his horn, you know. And, mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, having him as a teacher and also guys like Lou, Lou Soloff, I studied with him for a semester, you know, they, 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 they would start to send me to sub for them on certain gigs. I remember Joe called me one time and he said, hey, you know, I need you to, to cover, because at the time he was with Harry Connick band. Mm -hmm. So he asked me to go to Hawaii with Harry Connick's big band for, for one gig. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like 20 years old. I was like, yeah, I think I, I, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that, you know. So, I mean, little, little gigs like that. I mean, I was doing little restaurant gigs and playing some wedding bands, you know, just pay the bills and, and just to be working. I, I, you know, I, I didn't want to do anything else but just play my trumpet. And then uh, little, little by little, I, I started befriending uh, some, some, some of these uh, bigger names. Uh, I became friends with Gonzalo Rubalcaba, Cuban pianist, because uh, one of my best friends was, was playing bass with him at the time, Carlos Enriquez, who, now he's been with the Lincoln Center Band for over 10 years. But at the time, he was with Gonzalo. And so I got to meet Gonzalo through Carlos. Mm. Mm. And uh, I, my brother had, and I had just made our first record as the Rodriguez brothers. And, and I, I had a copy, and, I, and we wanted to give Gonzalo one. So we gave one to him, and he was very generous. Mm. And then um, months had gone by. And I remember I was driving to go visit someone, and my phone rang. And it said unknown or blocked caller. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember it was one of those Sprint phones, the, the silver one. You know? And I was like, oh, I usually don't pick those up because I, you know, I get nervous for some reason. I don't know it's unknown or blocked. But I, I picked it up and, uh, and, and I hear the voice that said, hey, man, is this Mike Rodriguez? I said, yes. Uh, who am I speaking to? Hey, this is Charlie Hayden, man. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, it was one of those New York moments. Like, oh, no. And so I pulled over on the highway, and I was like, yes, Mr. Hayden, how you doing? And I was like, why is he calling me? And I was like, you know, 
how, how did he get my number? Why is he calling me? I, I was just so excited. And he said, I got your number from uh, Gonzalo because he, uh, he, he was doing a follow-up record to Nocturne. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And he wanted to use trumpet in this. In this. He was going to do music from Mexican composers, a lot of uh, boleros, you know. Mm. So he wanted to use a, a trumpet, but not something. He didn't want like a mariachi sound. He wanted like, you know, something a la, you know, jazz, more in the jazz vein. I said, he said, I've never heard you play. Can you, can you send me something? I said, sure. So I sent him that same record. That, and he's, I said, okay, good. I sent it to him. Four months, and I hadn't heard, you know, I didn't hear anything. So I, but I, I thought, okay, well, you know what? That phone call was just, that was glorious for me. And that was enough for me to just be high on that for the rest of my life, you know. And, I, and four months went by. I said, okay, well, that, you know, I don't think he's going to call, which is, but that's cool. And he called me. And I was like, yes. He said, okay, so here's the date, uh, such and oh, such date. Awesome. And, you know, and uh, by the way, what are you doing next summer? And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, it was like. Okay, he goes, I'm, I'm bringing up, I'm assembling the, the, the Liberation Band again, you know, because, you know, he was, Bush was president at the time, and he was, you know, he had that, that thing, so he, he, he put together the Liberation Band, and he asked me to join him. Wow. And, you know, after that, it kind of just went on. That's after awesome. That, yeah, what a yeah, great story. Yeah, was, you had to endure I get that. goosebumps every time I think about that. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. a great story. You had to endure those four months of waiting for the response, yeah. you know, like, dialing I mean, your own I, phone. I, I thought it wasn't going to happen, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, I mean, I was like, all right, the phone call was, was good enough for me, you know. That's awesome. That's yeah. a fantastic story. Mm -hmm. um, Mike, you just said something that I thought was really important and, and um, that other musicians need to find out what you're capable of. And I think when I look at the two of you, I mean, basically, I, I can't think of anything in jazz that the two of you can't play. And I think one of the things that's important these days is, is the two aspects of... Uh, not that this, you, can't, you can, can't really lump it down to these two, but these are two important aspects, is big band playing and small group playing. You guys are both virtuosic at, at both. Um, I was wondering if you guys have a different head that you put on when you're playing in the big band. Obviously, ensemble playing is probably more at a premium. S small group playing, the soloing is probably more at a premium. But do you approach those two things differently, or, and, and how do you look at it? Maybe, uh, Mike, you want to start with that? And yeah. yeah. You know, the, the easiest, you know, path for me on that is, is always trying to put the music first. Like, like, what does the music need from me? And how can, how can the music benefit the most from, you know, my participation? Mm -hmm. and, and so that, right away, that answers all my questions about equipment, um, style, cutoffs, attacks, you know, from playing section. You know, what's my lead player doing? If I'm playing lead, what's my lead trumpet doing? Uh, you know, dynamically, uh, rhythmically, you know, all, all the above. So, um, you know, this is, I mean, we all, I, I think everybody, I think it's a common knowledge, everybody has egos and stuff like that, but I think like the, you think? <laughs> <laughs> Except for Mike Rodriguez, everybody. <laughs> okay, so, um, Man, we really have to edit our sense of humor, don't we? <laughs> this is beautiful, isn't it? Um, but but I think like 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 being you know musically adept at the situation, it, it really forces you to draw upon uh, upon your skill set and your experience and and to make musical decisions that you know basically put you know your wants like your selfish wants at the lowest possible priority. 
mm. and and it and it forces you to to ask like the bigger questions. And a lot of times, like probably most of the time, like those big questions, like am I listening to the melody? You know, what part is, is my role? Is this a background? Is this the uh, a pad behind the background behind the melody? You know, is this a solo? Is this a solo that requires me to like articulate the changes, or is it something that where the changes are maybe third or fourth in the priority, and I need to communicate directly with the rhythm. Like, mm -hmm. like is, is this like, you know, pedal to the metal, or is this, you know, sensitive, gentle ballad playing? You know, it, like all those questions, you know, basically get answered when you put the music first. And, mm -hmm. and, that, and that tells you what to listen to, you know? So when I'm doing a week with the big band or or, or a tour, or, or making a record with the big band, I'm usually listening to a ton of big band at that time, mm -hmm. uh, depending on like what era it is. Uh, if I'm conducting my own big band or doing Michigan State University, uh, my band there, uh, another incarnation of my band, um, we usually do like Count Basie, Duke Ellington, you know, uh, like older repertoire, like the heart and soul of music. Uh, I'm listening to that all the time, mm -hmm. so. Like that, just to make it as simple as possible, I think like we as students, um, at least for myself, I can't speak for you all, but, but I think my tendency is and was to overcomplicate things. Mm. You know, I get, I probably like the, one of the best examples of that is when people ask like how to transcribe something. They say, well, do you, do you sing it first and then write it down and then play it from memory? But if you do that, do you ever look at what you wrote down, if you've already memorized it? When you write it down, do you put articulations in it, or do you memorize the articulations? Do you put the chord changes? If so, do you put the chord changes from the real book, <laughs> or do you transcribe the piano part? If you do the piano part, do you put the alterations in it? Wow. Wait, do you do it with your eyes closed or open? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like how about just, just do the transcription and learn the music? And, yeah. And if, it, if you learn it, you did it right. Yeah, solid advice, no question. Yeah. How about you, Mike? Do you uh, look at it differently, or is it similar to the way Mike was approaching uh, it? No, very similar. I, I mean, I usually get called uh, to play third and fourth trumpet, you know, so I, when I was younger, I, I just kind of, not that I was lazy, but I just kind of, you know, uh, so the lead players that I, at the time were gracious enough to, to uh, you know, be vocal about what they needed in the section, mm. you know, and be, you know, not in a condescending way, but just like, mm. you know, a little shorter there, a little more sound, and blah, 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 things like this. And you quickly learn if you want to work, uh, or at least, be, you know, be a working brass instrument or trumpet player in, in New York, you got to, you know, have that together, section playing, you know. And so, you know, the great lead players like Bob Milliken, and uh, a good buddy of mine, Seneca Black, um, Tanya Darby and Tony Cad. I mean, I mean, Frank Green. I learned a ton from Frank Green, great mm -hmm. trumpet player. He, you know, he, he. I think he got it down to a science. You know, He's, <laughs> he would look at my equipment and say, "Yeah, you play on the higher end of, of, of the pitch." You know, because it, you know, it's very. You know, he has it down. So, mm -hmm. oh, so yeah. I really, I learned a ton just from being in a section from with him. And, and a couple times I got to play with John Fattis as with him in, in the section, and just hearing his sound is a lesson. You know, mm -hmm. playing in section with him is a lesson. And you quit, you know, you got to be quick with that, you know, and, and you know, also everything Mike, Mike said about uh, letting the music dictate how you, you know, 
what kind of sound you put out and, and motion and all this. You know, mm -hmm. you know, it's a whole it's a whole another ball game being a section player. And, and then when it's time to play a solo, you know, be you know, be you, be do do what you do. You know, don't be afraid of because that's why you're there. I think mm -hmm. you know. So you got to get up and hit it out of the park, or at least get the third base. You know? <laughs> get an RBI or something. You know? That's right. Well, well said from both of you guys. And I think the, the thread of listening all the time, clearly you guys approach it that way, but you just stated that, you know, there's so important. Can I add something on to what Mike said? Because he brought up an amazing point. Is um, like like the, the names he just listed are, are like the, uh, the the generation and the generation above above him, like in the timeline of like who's who on trumpet in New York. Mm -hmm. and, and that's fantastic. That's like a... That's an art to what we do mm. is is being aware of like the lineage and what people are doing right now uh, and how they've been successful so like you know it's um it's like sort of on the job training you know and it's not required from anyone to give it but when you're there and your ears are open you know and you're, you humble yourself you know you can learn those lessons because those lessons are coming out of the horns of those people like all the time mm-hmm yeah, that's fantastic. Fantastic advice. It leads right into my next uh, thought on that level. And you know, when I when I came to New York in the mid '80s, you know, all the uh, older guys who were you know just like they are now, and, uh, and I'm getting to be one of them myself. But very supportive and open to young players that were listening and 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 willing to receive the information. But one of the common threads that I would always hear would be, "Oh man, you should have been here in the '60s and '70s. Man, it was so happening." And now. You know, now I find myself, you know, every catching myself from saying that, and you know, it's like, oh man, you should have been here in the you know, 80s and 90s, blah blah blah. The truth of the matter is, you know, music is always going to be here. We read books about Mozart. The musicians had the same plight back then that we have now. It's a different uh, parameters, but basically, it's the same equation of us trying to figure out how to fit into uh, society in a, in a meaningful way in a society that doesn't, especially in the United States, doesn't necessarily value it in that. Uh, premium kind of level. All of that said, um, when you guys look at the New York scene now, um, in particular for, let's say, the generation behind you guys, the younger players, and, and maybe the ones that are just getting started in college right now and looking to both of you and say, geez, my wildest dream would be to be Mike Dees or Mike Rodriguez. How do you guys see the jazz scene in New York right now? And what do you think is, I mean, you've already touched on it, and, and hopefully people realize that, but even more specifically, how do you think that the young players should be approaching it? And is there a scene that they can grab onto? Is there enough there that it's possible to do it now for the next generation, two generations from now, to, to uh, adapt to what's going on in New York? Hmm. Mike, you want hmm. well, to take uh, a crack at that? That's a loaded <laughs> question. No. And, and there's a couple world problems I want you to solve at the same time, if you don't mind. <laughs> you got this, Mike. <laughs> um, I think you know there's always there's always going to be a scene or scenes in in, in New York. Mm -hmm. um, you know there's a Brooklyn scene, there's a downtown scene. I mean there's there's a lot going on. I think and and for the, my advice to the younger players, I mean I'm only 36, but you know the guy I guess the guys that are just in college now, they're 18, 19 years old. Is I would I would say just just keep you know getting your your instrument. Trying to play it to the highest level that you can possibly play it, uh, and and just learn a lot about music—not just you know jazz and improv, but just a lot about other kinds of music, because uh, you know you got to be able to wear different hats 
at different times in your career. Uh, like, you know, section playing, being a great section player, and also just like, you know, you'll get called to play uh, Latin gigs or something like this, and or polkas, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but, but just be open to, while you're honing in on your own craft, you know, mm-hmm. be a sideman, be a great sideman. You know, a lot of guys want to be leaders now, and, it's, and that's great, but, but I think they're missing out on, on that, a certain component, you know. Mm-hmm. Being a great sideman will teach you how to be a great leader, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I certainly, uh, you know, I do a lot of sideman work, and, and I, it, you know, for a while it took me, it's even, you know, with my brother, because my brother's there, so I feel, you know, it's comfortable, but, you know, when you break out on your own, it's like, oh, oh yeah. Oof, you know, they're all here to hear me. It's like, oh, I better bring something to the table, you know. So, if, you know, I'm in my, my, I didn't do my first record until I was in, you know, early 30s, you know. So, like, you know, 30, 33, 34, something like this. So, you know, having that experience of being a sideman all those years, and it really does help with, like, you know, like honing in on, on who you are and what you're trying to say, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, it's, you know, you learn from playing with Mike Diaz and Mike Davis and, and all these other guys, and you know, you bring it to what you're trying to do. And I think it's very important for the young guys to keep that in mind. You know, even though I don't know if the opportunity is there that much, but um, there's always something to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to learn regardless if you're open to it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Good. Very good advice, Mike. How do you see it? And yeah, you know, it's it's, it's cool hearing hearing Mike's you know, ideas about these things. It's, I don't know how cool it is for the interview because we, we feel very similar so far about like, <laughs> a, a whole number of things, but, but I love that too. Yeah. And, um, it's, uh, I think, you know, just to, you know, add something different to what Mike said, because I agree with all that. Um, like, uh, like being a side man, there's stuff you can only learn by like, you know, adapting and, and fitting within someone's musical concept. Like, that's where you really get to, to, to push and stretch and try and test the skills that you learned in the practice room from playing in, in school ensembles, from taking lessons with people. That's where you get to, to see, like, how's my stuff working, you mm-hmm. know? And is this cool? And is this, is this adding to the music? And did I get called back? Oh, good. I must be doing something right. Mm-hmm. How could I do something righter? You mm-hmm. know, how could this be cooler? How can I be me in this? You know, and I think, I think like, you know, being able to consider your audience, because a lot of times as a sideman, like your audience in, in, in a part is the band you're playing with because they have to, you know, respect where you're coming from and appreciate and, and dig what you're adding to the ensemble. So they're like the, the bands that you're trying to work with are a type of audience. Mm. And, and furthermore than that, like your collective audience, like, um, like what's your goal with, with your music, with, with whomever is, whether it's original compositions or whether you know, I'm playing Mike Rodriguez's charts, like what, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to get people to think? Are we trying to get people to dance? Are we trying to get them to do both? Mm-hmm. Are we trying to get people to sing? You know, and, and to have like an understanding of like who you are as an artist and 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 what you're going for. I think a lot of people mis misconstrue um, like traditional study with compromise. You know, oh well I have to 
I have to gliss in this because that's what they want me to do, but I'm not a, a glisser if we're talking about trombone mm -hmm. things or something, or, or, or if we're playing like, you know, a piece from the 60s and, and, and I know that if I go, you know, that, that, that thing, that's going to make the, the, the old cat at the bar go, ah, you know, <laughs> but like, that's not compromise. It's not if it comes from your heart, mm -hmm. not if it comes from like understanding like the musical language. And I think, I think uh, sometimes, for better or worse, we can get so enamored with like what we want to do that we lose sight of, of our role. Mm. And so I think that like younger musicians, you know, you know, you have to, especially like coming to New York. New York is a great place to, to like, find out who you are, because there's something different every single block. Um, the other side of that, and that's actually a big part of why I, I went to a state school, then I went to a conservatory, and now I'm, I teach full time at a state school. Um, there's some, there's an experience that can only be had at like a public university that's its own type of thing that's like the, there's a social aspect there's um, like a a community out aspect where you're not surrounded by musicians 24 7 that that it forces you to make a choice because you still have to hit the shed just like you would in a practice room at Juilliard mm -hmm. but you're at a Big Ten school you're at a SEC school you're at you're at wherever you've got great teacher you've got a band program but you got to make decisions and so you you find out who you are and that informs like what you bring to your music where you bring your music to whom you're trying to play with whether it's in a small group or a big band and yeah I think that's a that's like a if I had to sum up like a piece of advice for like the a generation is like to really find out who you are and like what what's important to you and, and, and work on crafting, crafting your brand. Hmm. Wow. Can I have a do-over and study with you guys? Uh, <laughs> wow. So great, uh, so much great uh, thoughts there. Thank you for uh, putting it that way. It's really, mm. really great. Um, let's shift gears and talk about you guys as solo artists now, because you're both doing amazing work. And um, we'll start with, with you, Mike, because I know you're, CD is coming out now, um, mm. Decisions, and you mm. just got done with the big band record, Relentless, yeah. and uh, Coming Home was a great project. I mean, they all have their own. You seem to be able to keep the Mike D sound, but, but change the music uh, from, from uh, project to project, a real gift and, and talent un, unto itself. But tell us about what you're doing, and tell us about the new record, and, uh, and, oh, sure. and how the process was. Oh, well, thanks for saying all that. Um, yeah, that... Uh, I'm with Positone Records now, and, and our first record uh, was a big band project. I've, uh, I play all the instruments except double reeds, so I've always wanted to do a big band record. Like when I write, I kind of think of me playing them a little bit, and that, that helps. I'm, I uh, sort of self-taught as an arranger, so I'm, I, I don't you know, do like traditional drop two, you know, two and four type things. I just sort of you know, hear a line and voice it out at the mm -hmm. piano like I want and, mm -hmm. and um, so I always wanted to do a big band record and that came out we, we recorded that in 2013 and and uh, the latest record is called Decisions it's about basically every big decision that I've ever had and a lot of them that had happened recently I got married August 11th 
2014. My wife's the uh, uh, professor of percussion at Michigan State. She's an amazing, amazing player, one of the world's best uh, marimba uh, soloists and orchestral percussionists, uh, principal percussion at Brevard, and she's also on faculty at Peabody Conservatory of Music in Baltimore. But, um, at, you know, we got married, that's a big decision, one I'm, you know, super happy with. We just uh, announced that we're having a child. That's in, awesome, congratulations. In January, thanks, thanks. Baby D's. Baby D's. <laughs> baby D's. I, I'm so we, we heard the baby's heartbeat yesterday. Oh, we, had a, we had one day in between here and Argentina to make this uh, OBGYN appointment. So I have a little video of hearing the baby's heartbeat. Wow. And it was at 144, and then when we listened, it went up to 155. Wow. Like, oh, the baby's excited. Excited, <laughs> sure. Those were checking him out. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, man. And so. So Decisions, all the tunes, there's a tune on there called Gorgeous Gwen for my wife. There's a tune called Right Place, Wrong Time, which is probably too personal for this interview. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's, it's great. It's got Tim Green, great uh, alto saxophonist, Mulgrew Miller, Christian McBride. I was also with the Buble Band recently. Uh, Glenn Zaleski, who's uh, tearing up piano, and Rodney Whitaker, mm -hmm. who's uh, director of jazz studies at Michigan State. And, I've always wanted to uh, work with him and make a record with him. I remember hearing him play bass with Wynton uh, when I was 15. You you remember Rodney with Joe? Sure. Yeah, uh, see him all the time with and, the band. Yeah, hearing that hearing that that bass with the band, the heartbeat of the, of the group, just it was a real honor to have him play. So we had him, and then Ulysses Owens played drums. So that comes out August 28th. It's uh, mostly original compositions. I recorded one of my uh, one of my own trombone heroes, Steve Davis. Mm -hmm. uh, we recorded one of his compositions called "Grove's Groove," which was a tune he wrote for Benny Golson, some new tet that he joined, replacing Curtis Fuller. But the the tune I think is dedicated to uh, Roy Hargrove, mm. who is mm. also one of my bosses when I play in his big band. So it's cool to do that tune. Good stuff. So decisions August twenty eighth. Everybody yeah. uh, look for that. It's exciting. That's Thanks. great stuff. Mike, how about your, uh, your projects with your brother and solo stuff, and what do you got happening? Well, the latest thing is uh, recording is entitled Impromptu. It's a record my brother and I. Uh, this is our fourth, fourth one as co-leaders, and it's off the Criss Cross uh, mm -hmm. record label. Mm -hmm. And it came out back in, uh, in May, I believe. Some, I think May, yeah, May 18, I think it, dro it dropped. <laughs> May 18. Uh, and oh, man, uh, you dropped that name out. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> Put it back in the pocket there. Dropped several names. Oh, you dropped some impressions there, too. Well, you know. Yeah, so. It's all true, though. It's not. Anyway. <laughs> no, the, rec the record is out, and, and you know, uh, we've been fortunate. It's playing, you know, in radios, and just trying to push that, really, mm -hmm. that project right now. Uh, I had a solo record that came out in 2012, I believe, called Reverence, and you know, I'm very proud of that as well. Um, so I'm working on, on perhaps maybe another one as a, on, as a soloist, but right now my focus is with the Rodriguez Brothers, this latest project. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. It's, uh, it has Carlos Enriquez on bass, Samuel Torres, who's a virtuoso, virtuoso on, on, uh, on the percussion, and he's a, he's a great composer himself, you know. Mm -hmm. Percussionist who writes, it's like, Incredible, you know, and he, and he writes on a really high level. Mm. It's incredible. And uh, Ludwig Alfonso is a magnificent drummer. 
on the scene right now. Uh, my brother, Robert Rodriguez on piano. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah, amazing writer. So I'm lucky. Yeah. yeah. I'm lucky. Okay. Well, I don't know about lucky, but you're contributing yeah. to a, Thank you. a, an all-star lineup. That's a great, you. great stuff. Um, let's shift a little bit more and talk about the state of jazz education. We had uh, Mark Gould was our guest uh, last month, and uh, although he's obviously a classical player, but he has a jazz background as well, and he was very candid in his thoughts about uh, the state of music schools and music programs. But um, you guys have uh, you know a unique position as being you know top level solo artists and players, but also your your involvement in jazz education. And I was curious if you could just talk. At whatever level you'd like, whatever mm. it strikes you. I'm not looking for anything, really. It's, it's mostly just how you're feeling about it. But, um, Mike, I know you're teaching at uh, NYU and at Purchase. How mm. do you see things uh, these days developing for jazz education? Um, well, I, um, first of all, I have a lot of respect for, for what Mike Dees does. Like, he, he runs a, a studio, a program, you know. Uh, I, I go in, I give lessons, and I teach a couple ensembles, and even you know, and that that kicks my my behind, you know, because mm -hmm. for me, t teaching was not something I, I, I you know thought I would be ready for at such at this stage of the game. You know, I still felt like I'm learning. You know, so for me to sit down with a with a student and and say, no, you got to do it this way, and, you know, because I'm I'm still searching, I'm still figuring out ways how to how to get to whatever it is I'm trying to get to, you know, and it's, oh, that doesn't work, okay, try this. I mean, every, every month I, I'm bringing new material to the, to the guys that are, that are studying with me, so I hope I'm not confusing them, you know, like, <laughs> hey, I'm trying something new now, try this, you know, I don't know, but, but, but this, this, <laughs> it's, for, for me, it's fun, because I'm learning about what it is I'm doing, you know, and, and it's, even like, you know, on a very basic level, like, oh, you know, like just theor theory and stuff like this, you know, just to help them. Because you know a lot of them obviously want to be better jazz players, mm -hmm. and how do you really how do how do you teach someone how to be how to improvise? You know, mm -hmm. so I mean, there's this pedagogical ways of going about it, which I'm, I'm not familiar with. So I'm just going on my own experience. So I try to bring that to the students. Uh, the state of jazz, I mean, the schools, you know, it's uh, I don't I mean I don't know. There's a lot of students that are that are going to schools, you know, and and the schools is is like the scene now. Mm -hmm. You know, wherever you go, there's, there's there's great schools, and they just keep getting better, you know, and producing uh, great students. I mean, I, th I think students come in great players already. They just go into the schools and, and get to study with guys like Mike Dees and who inspire them to, to be better and to search for, for different things that they, you know, probably didn't know about before going to school. So they, they get with a guy like Mike, and, you know, it just opens up their whole concept, you know, the, or whatever it is they're trying to do. I mean, they, I think schools that have players at this level uh, are more are coming out are are come are are what am I trying to say? <laughs> are, are 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 putting together faculty of that caliber, right? You know, yeah, for, for the for the students too. You're seeing you that know. more. Yeah, you know, sure. Mike, he's a player. He's always on the road. You know, so Clearly, yeah. You know, it's better. I think that's better having somebody with with actual you know field experience rather than having some textbook you know. No question. Yeah. Doctor, I'm the doctor yeah. of music, and then he's never played a gig in his life. You know, I, I, yeah. I'd rather sit down with a guy who's never opened a book, but he's, you know, he's got a lot of heart. And I, yeah, you and me both, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And Mike, yeah. you and I had a very good conversation driving up from uh, the airport today, but uh, yeah. but maybe you could share what, whatever your feelings might be about uh, 
about jazz education and your, your position and so forth? Sure. Um, well, uh, I think it's a good point that, that uh, it was uh, one of Mike's points was that jazz education is, is relatively new. It's, uh, I mean, it was pioneered um, in the 50s, late 50s with Gunther Schuller, I think. And, um, and then Nathan Davis, David Baker. I mean, we're talking, we're talking within like the last 50 to 60 years, which is relatively short time for, for something to be taught in a curriculum in a university. And then you gotta sort of deal with the fact that jazz music comes from the streets. The jazz music comes from the square, you know, Congo Square, you know? Like mm. like to take that, to take like where that's coming from and like to develop sheets of paper that outline what you do every day and what you can't do and what you how you should think and how you should feel and, and you you know, you, you end up making jazz a class and you're gonna run into some difficulties. So I think like it's really, it's really great now in 2015, a lot of progress has been made um, finding a balance between like, you know, someone's academic profile and someone's professional playing profile as an educator. Because, um, you know, like Mike said, like to have a teacher that's, that's never like played a gig and has like MD, PhD, BC, <laughs> ADD, you know, after, after their name, you know, like, that's, uh, that, that could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be a drag. But it's no more or less a drag than having, you know, the baddest, giggingest player, like, miss half your lessons. That, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't feel good, mm. you know. And um, uh, so you got to find a middle ground. And I think that we're coming to a, a place and a time now where jazz education has grown and standards have been developed. Uh, and I think it's important for students coming in to jazz studies as a college student to understand like that there's been significant growth in this field and that it's important to understand like you're in college and and that you're you're getting a standardized type of instruction in like a real heart and soul like Salt, salt of the earth, like America folk music, music of slaves, mm-hmm. like music that has the blood and the heartbeat of this country. You know, it's very unique, and it and it's a story that never gets old. That's always rich, and 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 so is this not a perfect answer to it? Mm-hmm. And and you have to treat it, you know, like, you know, like what it is. It's imperfect beauty. You know, we can't. Jazz music is too amazing and, and too special to not be in the university. Mm. Yet the university can't 100% capture what is so sp- beautiful and special and amazing about the music. And, and the university, you know, can't really do that with anything. That's why people eventually leave the university <laughs> to figure out like where stuff can go. Mm. But um, you know, it's like like one of the things that took me. I feel like to the next level was to was to evaluate my uh, my responsibilities as a student and and to and to really try to find out who I was in that regard and that completely changed my school experience. I remember asking a professor like to show me how to improvise over this one chord and and 
that that wasn't the the professor's speciality. And I and me being a kid, I got like bummed out about it. I was like, well, I really wanted to to know how to how to do this one particular set thing, but you wouldn't go up to a physicist and ask him how to you know what would be the right chemical equation for for a uh, a product. It's not their speciality. You, mm-hmm. They're both scientists, but you, you dig what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. like it's, you know, we're we're talking about you know finely tuned instruments at this level. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't race a race a Porsche in a Formula One race, although they're both race cars. Mm-hmm. So, like being able to, you know, discern the subtleties uh, of how deep education can get, especially something as powerful as, as music. Is is like a formula for success when you're when you're a student, I think. Wow, I don't think I've heard put any better than that. That's really great, Mike. Yeah. Thank you for uh, shedding some light on that. Very. I got lost myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, since we are three brass players sitting here, we can't go through this interview without talking a little bit about equipment. So, uh, you guys are kind enough to bring your horns uh, and tell us what uh, what you're playing on and uh, and uh, what's going on with you in terms of equipment. Mike, why don't you? Sure. Um, you know, this is a, in 2006, um, I won this competition for the Trombone Association, and, and part of the cool deal with that is they give you a horn, and the, the company that sponsored that competition was, it's called Michael Rath Trombones, mm-hmm. and and uh, he came up to me, Michael Rath's like a great friend, he's an amazing person, awesome family, and he, he came up to me, he said, listen, kid, if you don't like the horn, tell me. <laughs> don't just go sell it. Talk to me. You know, I want you to be happy. And I was like, what? You want me to be happy? That's great. You know, you, you mean you don't just want me to be grateful and, and, and kiss your boots or whatever? You know, it was, and, and I wasn't around in the heyday of like awesome instrument manufacturers, um, but I've heard that that's how it used to be, mm. is, that the, is that the companies were like, you're our artist, here's an instrument, you know, uh, tell us, give us feedback. But, but Michael Rath did that with me, and I was, gosh, I was 24 at the time, blew me away, mm-hmm. his kindness, mm-hmm. and, and I did actually call him. I called him like two months later, and I said, hey, you know what, this horn is too small for me. Can, can I try something bigger? And we found like the horn that I've been playing on. I have a black bell, and I also have this yellow brass bell. But it's a symphony-size tenor trombone, so 0.547 bore. Mm-hmm. This happens to have a uh, F attachment on it with a, a Hagman, you know, F attachment valve, because uh, I'm doing a recording uh, tomorrow and and Sunday, uh, recording uh, classical music. Um, so I that, I brought that with me. But it's, it's all handmade, made in England. I've been playing them since 2006, and they never let me down. I've got, a, I've got every single trombone they've got, the R9, the bass trombone, the small guy, uh, the couple of big boys here. And the slides are pretty amazing. They don't have a stocking hitch right here. Mm. So they, they move seamlessly from the inner slide tube to the stocking tube. And... And I, I, I usually go two or three years before a slide adjustment, which is wow. great. Nice. So I have, they made a mouthpiece for me. Uh, but I'm, I'm currently playing Peter Pickett's mouthpieces, too. They're fantastic. He's in Lexington, Kentucky. I just stopped by the, the shop and, 
had mine scanned and they made a small one for me. Is great instrument, so that's what I got. Cool stuff. Beautiful, man. How about you, Mike? What are you uh, playing these days? Well, um, I'm a Yamaha artist, and I have a few of their trumpets that I, I, I you know, I'm always going back and forth on them. Because uh, I, I just like the sound on all of them, so I, I hate to just you know play one. But well, a friend of mine uh, made made this trumpet in in Japan. It's a it's like a Frankenstein kind of horn, and he did some custom tubing here. It's an Eric Marashiro barrel okay. with a Chicago Zeno body and and some uh, bracings here, some Martin Committee style bracings, Monet style bracings. I mean, so it, you know, I mean, he did some other tubing tubing thing here. So I mean I li- I liked how it played and I and I had it gold plated because I've never had a gold plated horn. It was raw brass. He gave it to me raw brass and kind of was leaving a mark on my hand after mm-hmm. gigs. So I decided to get it plated and I said, all right. I'll get it gold plated. <laughs> so uh, yeah I like it, you know, I really enjoy it and, and as far as mouthpieces, uh oh boy, it's been it's been a rough year going back and forth on all these I have this bag of mouthpieces that I'm just constantly saying, No, we're going back and forth. I even I had a long talk with Mike once about it, mm-hmm. and actually I, I contacted Peter Pickett, and he's oh. uh, he's making making me a piece now. So we'll we'll see what, what you, you know. I might be playing that next time you see me. But right now this is a Monet uh, B2S3. Uh, seems to work great with this horn, and mm-hmm. I've kind of mm-hmm. just got to practice on one mouthpiece and and just you know, <laughs> I, it, it it becomes a sickness. I remember. Uh, <laughs> Cassie would tell me, man, it's a sickness, don't get into that. And it's like, you know, this, you know, you just got to, I'm so curious, I want to see what it is. You know, so much stuff out there. So once that process gets going, you forget it. I don't think there's a mouthpiece out there that you wouldn't sound great on. Oh, but, well, uh, thank, thanks. <laughs> thank it, you. It is a sickness. <laughs> so. Do you notice the difference in the gold plating from the, I from do. the raw brass? I do. I, I noticed that the sound kind of brought the sound in a little bit, mm. focused it in, in a little bit more, maybe some, maybe a little, a little warmer. I, I, I feel like at times it is a little warmer, but definitely the sound is more focused. The, the mm-hmm. raw brass was kind of a little, a little too spread mm-hmm. for my taste, which, mm-hmm. you know, in certain situations I, I needed kind of like that thing. So, mm. Well, before we go uh, kind of close out here today with a final question, I just want to, first of all, thank you both for coming over. It's awesome to talk to you. I feel so thank you. energized talking to you guys with fresh ideas, and, and you guys are so passionate and, and obviously so... Uh, so much talent and virtuosity in everything you do. So, so continued success with everything that's going on. And, and thank, thank you, you for, uh, for, mm. for making the trip up today. Um, as we close out, where do you sign? I'm a big uh, goal guy and looking into the future and law of attraction kind of stuff. But uh, um, where do you guys see yourselves? Like uh, Mike, Mike Rodriguez at, uh, at age 50 and 55 wow. and 60, and, uh, or even just 45, or where do you see yourself in the next 10, 15 uh, Hopefully still years? with hair, you know. <laughs> I see there's grays coming in, but that's all right. I think you're going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him, you know. Okay. Um, uh, I, I hope to, you know, keep growing as, as you know, an artist, uh, you know, and keep working, get, getting better, at feeling comfortable playing this, this instrument. Uh, you know, keep writing and, you know, hopefully to keep growing uh, as, as, as an artist and career-wise and just, you know, keep performing and, and accumulating life experiences, you know, buy a home one day, you know, mm-hmm. things like, you know, still live life, you know, I want to be a father that. one day, you know, and, 
things like this and so uh but but you know we're talking music so uh yeah i want to grow <laughs> keep growing but incidentally I wanna... we just found out you got married last week so yeah. congratulations so, so on thank that. you you're thank uh, you heading in the right direction Thanks. for uh, yeah. <laughs> uh just keep growing as a brass player and, and you know awesome that suck <laughs> <laughs> i don't think we're in danger of that happening anytime soon how about yourself mike where uh, where do you see wow. yourself going in the next uh, couple decades well uh you know i, I love writing music so I, I'm trying to push myself in that regard, you know, and trying new things. I, I don't ever like to sit too still. Um, if you notice, I've picked up and put my horn down like 20 <laughs> different times this interview. I feel better when it, I'm holding it. Sure. So, but, uh, you know, it, 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 I really love mentoring people. Like the, the mentoring I received made a big influence in my life from, from Wycliffe Gordon to uh, Steve Teray. Um, you know, a lot of people have been there for me, so it's kind of cool to have that opportunity in my teaching situations like at Michigan State. Um, so a lot of my students, you know, find their ways into my band, and that's a really, really fun process for me. Uh, you know, like as a brass player, I'm always working on my sound, so, you know, hopefully I'm 32, so maybe 40-year-old Mike will have a bigger sound, always trying to work on long tones and and flexibility and all that good stuff. But to be completely honest, I can't think of anything right now except my baby's heartbeat. Oh, <laughs> I can't. I'm like, like good just, stuff. just, yeah. boom, 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 boom. you know. We were making a joke because my wife's a percussionist, um, and she, and, and now, <laughs> that's some things I'm not supposed to say. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but we were, we were. We were making a joke that the baby, because the heartbeat sounds like, doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo. we were making a joke that like the baby's like doing bongos on her bladder. So that's one thing that, you know, everybody sort of has to, my students end up finding out is that I kind of have a goofy sense of humor, which is, I think, a longstanding D's tradition. So, but, yeah, I man. love it. Well, that's, that's awesome. why we love you, man. <laughs> and uh, and all the best with the baby. That's uh, nothing better. It's uh, fantastic. So thanks, thanks. Well, uh, I hope all of you got as much out of this as I did. I was really excited about this, and it was surpassed my expectations. These two gentlemen are incredible people, and obviously, as we all know, incredible musicians. And uh, I think, as the old saying used to go uh, when Michael Jordan was playing, "Be like Mike." Uh, never had a better application than uh, with these two gentlemen. So. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we uh, thanks again, Mike and Mike, for uh, all the great insight you gave us today. And we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.